anybody want their souls to be refreshed this morning? <clears throat> do you ever feel like you don't know what to do or say in a given situation and need some wisdom? Anyone in need of more joy in their heart? Anyone not sure what to do in terms of the road ahead, which way to go, need a bit of guidance? Well, let's see what the psalmist says, how we can receive all these amazing things this morning, because that's what we're going to look at from looking at Psalm 19. So if you've got your Bibles or your, your tablets, or they'll come up on the screen behind me, or in the notes, we're going to have a look at Psalm 19 together. So let me read it to you. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he's pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving or refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Pray that you would open up our ears, that you would open up our hearts, that we would hear you speaking to us through your word, as you promise you will do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in this psalm, really, it starts off looking at God's general voice. That's where we're going to start in the first few verses. As you know, during my recent sabbatical, I studied Genesis, looking at the story of creation, the what and the how and the why God made everything, including the fact that everything he made gives testimony to the fact that there is a God who made all this. I came across a story from Sir Isaac Newton, a famous fella from days of old, and he had a friend who was an atheist. And this friend didn't believe that there was a God, he just preferred to believe that things just happened. And one day this friend was visiting Newton, and Sir Isaac Newton showed him a model of the solar system that he had. And the sun and the planets and the moon were all in places, and the size of them were all correct in relation to one another, and they all moved round each other as they would genuinely move round one another. And the friend admired the model, and he said, wow, that's intriguing. Who made it? Nobody, said to Isaac Newton. It just happened. 
And that's really what the psalmist is talking about here in these first six verses, how all of creation, how it is and how it works, all speaks about the fact that there must be a God who made all this. So it says, the heavens declare his glory. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they speak, every day they speak the same thing. Night after night they reveal knowledge about the one who made them. He says they don't use audible words and yet creation's voice goes out into all the earth to the very ends of the world. And he takes one element like the sun and he says as the sun comes up like a bridegroom kind of rising and as it goes up and as it goes round the world and as it sets, what happens is its light and its heat affects every single living creature And it's like every single ray of sunlight that comes from the sun shouts to them, there is a God who made all this. I think I said before that that program, The Blue Planet, which always seems to win awards for for amazing camera work and photography and getting right in there into burrows and underground and we can tell how ants live in mountains and do all manner of things. And Everyone is amazed. Let me just say... God didn't make all that amazing stuff so that we might go, wow, what amazing stuff. He made it all so we might go, wow, what amazing stuff. Who made it? Who made the incredible stuff that we get to see in the cameras? And uh, I suppose in the psalmist day, look at the world, look at the sky, look around you. Aren't they all speaking and proclaiming day after day, night after night, there is a God who made all this. Or do you believe, like Sir Isaac Newton's friend, it just happened? It just happened doesn't seem a very good answer sometimes, does it? It just happens. And that's what the psalmist wants to say here. He's saying creation is displaying and declaring, literally giving voice to the glory of God. And he wants us to see that, to understand it, and he wants us then to listen and hear and praise God. So if you like, this is where the psalmist starts, God's general voice speaking to us through creation. But then he comes in and having said that, he's now going to start talking about how God speaks to men and women specifically. And actually how God's word, how the Bible is the way that God wants to speak to men and women personally like you and I so that his ways can become a reality in our lives. So those verses, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. So let's think about this under three sections. Number one, how God speaks. The psalmist says the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the decrees of the Lord. Now, these different things, laws and statutes, precepts, commands, decrees, they're all, if you like, slightly different ways, modes of God speaking, which have then been written down by men for us and gathered together in the scriptures, in the word of God, in the Bible. 
And when you think about it, a law is slightly different than a command, and a command is slightly different than a decree, but actually they're all the same God speaking, and at the heart of them is the same thing. So you might say the law is that you must not jump off a cliff. The warning might be do not jump off a cliff or you will die. They're slightly different, but in essence they're saying the same thing. Guess what? Don't jump off the cliff. And so in many ways, I don't think it particularly matters that the the law does this and decree does that and command does that. I think really what the psalmist is saying is this is the way God speaks. These are all slightly different ways of communicating that God has. The key thing is that it's God speaking and what they all communicate are the things that he wants to say. They might be slightly different in tone, but they don't don't, um, contradict each other They actually are coming from the same God and they give the same root message and it is what God wants to say. And God has then made sure that they have all been recorded for us. They've been written down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, under the hand of God. Yes, written down by men, but it is what God wanted to say. We have it, it's been produced for us in our Bibles. I've heard people say, well, you can't really trust the Bible. You sure men wrote it, Chinese whispers, you know, that kind of thing. I just really want to say, if God is able to create this world with all its beauty and complexity, then he is surely able to write a book. It does not seem beyond the wit of God to be able to make sure that... I don't think he really just set somebody off to write it. It's like, oh, no, no, I didn't want you to say that. I don't think that is the way that our God works. And so the Bible contains God's laws and his commands and his statutes and his decrees, and it contains narrative accounts, his dealings with men and women through the years, and it contains poems and proverbs and prophetic revelation And all of them are there, deliberately included by God, because together they contain everything that God wants to say to us. That's why the Bible is called the Word of God. It's what he wants to say to every man or woman, everyone who has lived, everyone that is living, everyone that will live. What God wants to say is contained in God's book. And so the psalmist takes us to the word of God in order that we might hear God speaking to us personally. And then he moves on to talk about what God speaks. And what the psalmist says about the word of God is that it is perfect. He says it's trustworthy. He says it's right. It's radiant. It's pure. It's firm. That's what he's talking about. So why is the word of God perfect? The answer is because the one who spoke it is perfect. God himself is perfect. Therefore his word is perfect. Why is the word of God trustworthy? Because the one who spoke it is trustworthy. God. Why is the word of God pure? Because the one who spoke it is pure. God himself. Why is the word of God firm? Because the one who spoke it is firm. God himself. The psalmist isn't saying these things because he wants to claim that in terms of literary quality, that the Bible is the best book ever. 
It's not like he's doing a kind of book of prize, the Bible, but a Shakespeare, Dickens, your favourite book. He's not, he's not saying that. He's saying that the Bible is these things because God is these things. And because the Bible is the word of God, it is what God wants to communicate with people, they are a revelation and a declaration of God's character. We've got to understand this. They're a revelation and a declaration of God's character. If they're a revelation, because when we read it, we can see what God is like. We, God is revealed to us as we read his words that he wrote in his book. And it's also a declaration of the character of God. It's God saying, this is what I am like. This is what I am like. I know the word of God is perfect because God is perfect and he couldn't speak an imperfect law because it's not who he is. I know the word of God is firm because God is firm. And so he says things like, I am a rock, I am the rock. If you build your life on me, you will not be shaken because I am firm. So when I read the Bible, I'm not reading primarily a history book. Oh, that's nice, that's interesting. Ooh, glad I wasn't there then. That's not what it's about. I'm not reading a self-help manual, how my life can be more successful, seven ways, stick it on a blog. It's not what I'm reading. I'm reading about what God is like, what his character is like, how he's dealt with people in the past, which helps me understand how he's going to deal with people like me and you now, because he doesn't change. It is because he is. Do you understand? It is because he is. And therefore, I can believe what it says because I believe in the one who said it. That's what God speaks. And then the psalmist brings us on to say, well, okay, so what's the effect of God speaking? What's the effect of God speaking? And we read it out earlier. The first one was, it says, our souls get refreshed. So how, how does my soul get refreshed when I read the word of God? Well, I think when I read the word of God, I meet with the God who wrote the words. When I read the word of God, I meet with him who wrote it. And he is perfect. And he is faithful. And he's trustworthy. And is he, and he's firm. And as I read what God has written in the past, so I hear him speak into my heart and into my circumstances today. Do you understand? As I, as I read the word of God and I read things that have happened in the past, what actually happens is I begin to engage with the God who wrote it and as I begin to read those things, so he begins to speak to me about things that are going in on my life today. And I hear him speaking personally through what he's written into my soul. And as I hear God speaking into my life and my heart and my circumstances, so my soul gets refreshed. Because guess what I realise? Guess what I remember? I remember there's a God. And he knows me and he loves me and he's saved me and he's called me. And he's pleased with me and he's prepared a place in heaven for me. And as I remember all that, guess what happens? My soul gets refreshed. Where did it start? It started when I opened up the word of God. And I started to read it. And I started to remember that there's a God who loves me and knows me. How does my heart receive joy when I read the Bible? When I, Dale Barlow, read the Bible, how does my heart receive joy like the psalmist says? I think it's this way, because when I read the word of God, 
guess what I do? I meet with the God who wrote it. I meet with the God who wrote the words. And often he says to me, Dale, you're looking for joy in wrong place. You're looking for joy in circumstances. You're waiting until life circumstances are all lined up just how you want them. Every prayer that you think should be prayed is prayed. Everyone is behaving themselves and acting how you think they should behave. And then, then you'll have joy. Son, you're looking in the wrong place. That's what he often says to me. And he reminds me that you're not going to be happy when everything in life is going perfectly. Because guess what? None of our lives are going to go perfectly. If you look for joy in your circumstances, one thing wrong, whole thing gone. Just ridiculous. And he reminds me that actually he has joy and is willing to give joy. He's willing and able to give us joy. It's like he has a store of it in heaven and he can give it to us when we ask. And so guess what I do? I ask. Guess what joy, guess what God does? He gives. He gives. That's amazing. I know, it's deep. I know, I'm with you. It really is as simple as that. And then do you know what? Circumstances may go well or badly, may get better or worse, but if my joy is not dependent on circumstances, but is coming directly from God and my relationship with him, then things may go terribly or things may go well, but my joy is not dependent on that. Never has been, never will be. It's coming fresh from God. That's going to help to get me through the difficult circumstances and will probably help me not to become all big-headed and lazy when things are going well. Nope, just me. Okay, all right, that's fine. No, no, that's all right. See, my heart does not receive joy when I read the Bible and think, what a beautifully scripted piece of ancient literature. Wow, I love the original Hebrew and Greek there just a joy to my heart. It just, that just doesn't happen. I get joy because when I read it, I remember who the author of it is. And then I remember that he's here with me. And then I remember that he's God and he loves me and he knows me and he saved me and prepared a place for me. And then I remember that actually he's got joy. And then I remember, okay, maybe I'll ask him for joy and not my circumstances. I might just be the most stupidest Christian in the room. I understand that. But I kind of need this. And this is how it works for me. I get joy when I read, I remember who God is and that he's there and he's willing and he's able to give me what I need day by day, whether it's joy or peace or grace or wisdom. I remember verses like Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Tell me, in that verse, what is there about circumstances? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. What in that verse is there about our circumstances? Nothing. Nothing at all. It's God who fills us with these things. That then, as it says, we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In good days, bad times, good times and bad times, things we enjoy, things we don't enjoy, but we are getting our hope from God and we are not dependent on circumstances how our bank balance is, whether we feel prayers are being answered, whether it's been a good day, bad day, good week, bad week. Do you, understand? Do you get it? Yeah. How do my eyes get light? In other words, how do I know which choices to make as I read the Bible? Because that's what the psalmist says. 
I think it's because as I read the Bible and I read how God is directing people in it who lived in different times than me, but what I see is these unchanging principles in terms of who God is and how he deals with people and how he wants them to relate to him. And as I reflect and I ponder these things, I find that I start to bring before God the choices and the decisions that I make and that I need to make. And I start to wonder, God, because now I've realised you're there, because I forget that, God, just like you led David and Joseph and Moses and Peter when they didn't know what to do, would, would you lead me? Like you led them, would you speak to me about these choices that I have to make? Different circumstances, but same principles. I have choices and decisions to make. I don't know which way to go. I want to honour you. You led those guys and girls. Would you lead me? And I find that as I ponder those things, guess what? Faith grows in my heart. This, this intangible thing called faith, this trust in God, that actually he has my days marked out, that he has my back. He has these things covered. Faith grows. And so what I do is I, I wait and I ask and I listen. I say, God, will you speak? Will you speak like you spoke to them? Will you speak to me today? And guess what? God speaks. Sometimes straight away. Sometimes through his word. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it's through another way. But reading God's word has got me engaged with the God who knows all things Everything about me and my life, everything he's got planned for me. And as I read the word of God, it reminds me who I am engaging with. And I begin to ponder, and faith starts to rise. And I realise that, yeah, I've still got the same questions, but I'm now engaging with God, who has the answers to them. And at some point, I trust God will answer me. How does... How does a simple man like me become wise as I read the word of God? That's what the psalmist says. Reading the word of God makes wise the simple. I think it's because as I read the words of God, I meet with the God who wrote the words. Bless you. It's the same answer. As I read it, I meet with God. And therefore, rather than the world shaping my thinking, or social media, or TV, or public opinion, or even worse, me, me, Dale Barlow, seeing the world in my image or my view. The world according to Dale Barlow would be a terrible thing and a terrible place. I think as I read the word of God, God shapes. God teaches me what he thinks, what he's like, how he wants the world to function. And as I learn from him, and as I learn what he thinks... So I think you go from being simple to being wise. See, wise is not about being clever. Clever is knowing lots of stuff, and there's nothing wrong with being clever. I'd rather have a clever doctor than a non-clever doctor. I want my doctors to know lots of stuff. But we have to understand, in terms of, in terms of God, clever is, is knowing lots of stuff, but wisdom is about knowing God. Wisdom is not knowing lots of stuff. Not, it's not about knowing lots of facts and figures and how things work. Wisdom is about knowing God. So to end with a wise man or woman, you don't start with a clever man or woman. You start with a simple man or woman. One who may know a lot or may not know a lot, but they know one thing. They know that they don't know much about God. I'm simple in that I don't know much in myself. I might think I'm, I don't know much. God, I need to know from you. 
So to end with a wise man or woman, you don't start with a clever one, you start with a simple one, one who knows that they don't know much about God. But then from that place of humility, they allow God to shape and to teach. And the more and more that simple man or woman gets to know God, the wiser they become. I found this fascinating description of a fool in Proverbs 26. I think it'll come up behind me. You got it in your notes. So Proverbs 26, a few of the verses talking about a fool. It says, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the backs of fools. Sending a message by the hands of a fool is like cutting off one's feet or drinking poison. Like tying a stone in a sling is the giving of honour to a fool. Like a thorn bush in a drunkard's hand is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. Like an archer who wounds at random is one who hires a fool or any passerby. As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. If you just follow these things, what it says, it says if, you, if a fool needs to be whipped or beaten like a donkey because it's too stupid to know what it's doing or where to go. It says if you're going to give a message to a fool, you'd be better to cut off your legs or poison yourself because there's more chance of that message getting through than the fool actually delivering it. It says, a fool is like, it's like David and Goliath, you've got a, a shot, a ball, and a sling, like a catapult, and the fool would put the ball in, tie the ball to the sling, and then throw it. Of course, causing the thing to... Gone. It's ridiculous. Why would you do it? He says, a fool is like, it's like hiring an archer... Right? Someone, and then the archer just ba-doing, 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 just firing at people randomly. Ba-doing, dead, dead, dead. It says a fool is, is, they're so foolish, they just keep doing their same foolish things like a dog who returns to its vomit. We've got a dog and we've seen this a little bit. Our little dog don't care what it eats, really. Doesn't care where it's come from, even if it's come from itself. The Bible's saying, you know, a fool will just carry on doing their foolish things. They'll just keep repeating them. And for 11 verses, it seems that a fool is described as being the worst thing in the world. And then the punch comes at verse 12. Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for them. That's a kicker, isn't it? That verse will keep you awake at night. There's more hope for a fool, right? Right? More hope for them than someone who is wise in their own eyes. Why? Because someone who is wise in their own eyes, are they think they know it all. They think they don't need God to teach them. They are, in essence, unteachable. See, there's nothing wrong with being simple. In fact, being simple is the starting place to be taught by God. Because being simple is simply admitting, God, I need to learn from you. But if you are wise in your own eyes, it basically means you're saying, God, I don't need you to teach me anything. I don't need to read your word because I don't really need to learn how you are or what you're like because I, I, I know myself. I know it. I'm wise in my own eyes. I know better. I know how life works. I know the rights and the wrongs, the ups and downs. I know how it works. I don't need you to teach me, God. And the Bible says that a fool has more chance, more hope for a fool than for someone who's wise in their own eyes. It's a kicker, isn't it? Kick me, anyway. I've spoken to many Christians who say they don't read the Bible because they don't have time, and, or they don't understand it, etc., etc. But I always wonder, 
really how many the root issue is actually they think they're wise in their own eyes. I don't really need to. I think I know enough about how life works. I think I've learned a few things. I know a bit about God. I know enough. don't really need to be taught by him. But the psalmist says, if you want your soul to be refreshed, if you want to be wise, if you want joy, if you want guidance in your life, then why don't we do as the psalmist says and read the word of God? We won't get those things as a reward for following a reading plan. It's not like a gold star that you get for doing it. You'll get them because as you read God's word with open ears and open hearts, you're going to meet with the God who wrote it. And when you meet with God, he is able to refresh and he is able to guide and he's able to feel and he's able to give wisdom along with peace and power and direction and reassurance and every other promise that's in the Bible. Some people say, well, it's, it's a, you know, I, just don't need to, I just don't need to read the Bible that much. It's okay, I connect with God in other ways through worship and other Christians, etc. And that is all true. But in God's word, what God says is the primary way I want to speak to you is through my word. Why don't we just let God be God and let him speak to us how he wants to, would be my answer. Just imagine that you're at an all-inclusive week's holiday. You're on the beach in Barbados. You've paid for an all-inclusive holiday. And at some of these all-inclusive holidays, they still have the vending machines at the end of the hotel corridors because no point getting rid of them. They just shove crisps and sweets and rubbish in there just because everything is free anyway. Just imagine if you were in there and you decided, you know, for a week, I think I'm just going to live off the crisps and the sweets and, 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 and the old bars of chocolate that is in the vending machine. I'm just going to eat that. You could survive, you could live, but you're living off scraps and rubbish and blah, blah. When downstairs in the restaurant, there is three courses paid for, laid out for you. Steak and chips, sticky toffee pudding. There, available for you, a feast. And we decide, no, no, I'm going to go and eat these rather stale crisps and, you know, rice cakes from the vending machine at the end of my corridor. I think that is very similar to what many of us do when we don't read the word of God. Because there is a feast here. There is spiritual food that God has prepared for us. And yet so often we can just live off the scraps. And we don't need to. See, there was a price paid for every promise given in this book. There was a price. It's free to us, but there was a price. The price was Jesus hanging on a cross that we might have relationship with God and so he could bless us and refresh us and guide us and fill us and give us peace and give us wisdom. It's free to us, but there was a price that had to be paid so that we could have a relationship with God which enabled him to do these things in our life. That price was Jesus. It's like he's paid the bill. He's paid for the steak and chips and the sticky toffee pudding. He's paid for all these promises that are contained in the word of God, to be true in our lives. And yet I wonder, sometimes we just leave it. We just, just leave it. Just leave it. And the psalmist, I think, is urging us, don't leave it. 
There is refreshment for your soul. There is joy for your heart. There is light for your eyes. It's all here, not because you read, not because you read three verses, because when you read those verses, you engage with God. And when you engage with God, he's able to do all these things in our lives. So that is how I think it works. That's what I think the psalmist is getting at. That's, I believe, how it is to work in our lives. The psalmist ends by simply saying that for him, the word of God is more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. More precious than gold. I wonder, is the word of God more precious than gold to us? If we were to say, reading the Bible, where does it come on the priority? The word of God, where, where, where does it come in terms of our lives, ambitions? Where does it come? For the last few years, I've run a four-week reading the Bible every day type course as part of our discipleship track. And we have found every time, with every course, with every person, one thing. That if we will make time on a daily basis to read the Bible, God speaks to us. We did it this last time. The first night when we fed back, having done it, having encouraged everyone to read a bit of Psalms, a little bit of John each day, it took nearly an hour for six people to feed back what God had spoken to them. He told them he loved them, he reassured them about things that he said, he spoke into their future, he spoke about some things that had gone on in the past. It took over an hour for six ordinary Christians like you and me, some of whom are sitting here in this room, so I'm not going to look at anybody, to feed back just some of the things that God had said to them when they made 15 minutes a day to open up his word with open hearts and an open mind, and he spoke to them. If we will make the time, open our ears, open our hearts from a place of humility, then I believe that God will speak to us. So let me encourage you to read the word of God. Start however you want to start. Maybe read a psalm a day. Uh, if you've tried before and you've struggled, then try again. If you do read the word of God each day and pray, then carry on, be encouraged, don't give up. I want you to know, I want you to read the Bible because there are such great, good, encouraging, instructive, comforting, healing things that God wants to say to you in his word. They're there, contained in his word. And he wants to speak them to you day by day. And yet when we don't open the word of God, it's like we're denying God that opportunity to speak to us. God is so kind, so compassionate, so willing to speak into our lives and to bless us as we need to be blessed. I want to finish by sharing with you something that I read, an illustration I read in a Tim Keller book that I was reading on prayer. And the context is that he's saying that really our prayer time comes out of spending time in the Word of God. We should read the Word of God, think about it, and then we should pray. So when he uses the word prayer here, he's also including reading the Bible. This is what he says. I often ask Christians to evaluate their situation with regard to prayer and reading the Bible by using a metaphor. Imagine that your soul is a boat, a boat with oars and a sail, in this case, here are the four questions. Are you sailing? Sailing means that you are living the Christian life with a wind at your back. 
God is real to your heart. You often feel his love. You see prayers being answered. When studying the Bible, you regularly see remarkable things and you sense him speaking to you. You sense people around you being influenced by the Spirit through you. That's sailing. Or are you rowing? Rowing means you're finding prayer and Bible reading to be more of a duty than a delight sometimes. God sometimes seems distant and the sense of his presence can be rare. You don't see so many of your prayers being answered. You may be struggling at times with doubts about God or yourself. And yet, despite all this, you refuse self-pity or the self-righteous pride that assumes you know better than God about how your life should go and you continue to read the Bible and pray regularly. You attend worship and reach out and serve people despite sometimes feeling an inner spiritual dryness. It's rowing. Are you drifting? Drifting means that you are experiencing all the conditions of rowing, but in response, instead of rowing, you're letting yourself drift. You don't feel like approaching and obeying God, so you don't pray, you don't read the Bible. You give in to the self-centeredness that naturally comes when you feel sorry for yourself. When you drift into self-indulgent behaviours to comfort yourself, whether it be to escape through eating or sleeping or sexual practices or whatever else. He says, or are you sinking? Eventually your boat, your soul will drift away from the shipping lanes, as it were, truly lose any forward motion in the Christian life. The numbness of heart can become hardness because you give in to thoughts of self-pity and resentment. If some major difficulty or trouble were to come into your life, it would be possible to abandon your faith and to stop identifying as a Christian altogether. In this metaphor, we see that there are some things that we are responsible for, such as using the means of grace, like reading the Bible, like prayer, like being involved in your church in a disciplined way. But there are many things we do not have much control over, such as how well the circumstances of our lives are going, our emotions going up and down. If you pray, worship and obey despite negative circumstances and feelings, you won't be drifting. And when the winds come again, you will move ahead swiftly. On the other hand, if you do not apply the means of grace, you will be at best drifting. And if the storms of life come into your life, you might be in danger of sinking. In any case, pray no matter what. Praying is rowing. And sometimes it is like rowing in the dark. You won't feel that you're making any progress at all, yet you are. And when the winds rise again, and they surely will, you will sail again. Row. Reading the Bible and prayer is like one oar. Keeping in fellowship with God's people is like the other oar. I think the psalmist is encouraging us to do both. Great, thanks, Missy.